Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. The phrase attendance bias typically means that you enjoy a show or that you find it special to agree that might be irrational compared to a more objective assessment. But today's guest took the term and expanded its meaning just a little bit. He chose a show that was extremely meaningful to him in a way that no other guest thus far has approached. It's not a stretch to say that today's guest tonally broke new ground for the podcast. All that said, today's guest is the host of the Broke Down podcast, co-host of the Helping Friendly podcast, and musician Jonathan Hart. If you've listened to the excellent Helping Friendly podcast, then you've heard Jonathan's voice alongside his co-hosts, RJB, Brian Brinkman, and Megan Glyona, who have all appeared here on Attendance Bias. While RJ, Brian, Megan, and virtually all Attendance Bias guests have chosen shows or performances that thrill them or impress them, Jonathan bucked the trend. He picked a show from one of Fish's lowest points, August 9th, 2004, at the Hampton Coliseum. As you'll hear us extensively discuss, Jonathan chose not to attend Coventry at the time. So back then, in August 2004, this Hampton show was presumably the last time he would ever see Fish. With expectations and emotions running at an all-time high, it wasn't so great when the band didn't deliver. So while Jonathan has attendance bias toward this show, it's not for the usual reasons. So let's join Jonathan to talk about August 2004, why the band loves Hampton so much, and the meaning behind crowd control as we discuss Fish's show from August 9th, 2004 at the Hampton Coliseum. Jonathan, thanks for being on Attendance Bias. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. I'm so interested to talk to you, even though you and I have spoken a number of times on your podcast as a co-host, the Helping Friendly podcast, one of your many podcast interests. (laughs) But I'm really excited to talk about you today, about the show that you selected, which is August 9th, 2004 at the Hampton Coliseum, because believe it or not, you are the first and to date only guest to choose a fish concert from 2004. I can't imagine why. (laughs) (laughs) Well, despite everyone's preconceived notions, ours included, there is a lot to talk about. There is. And, you know, attendance bias doesn't mean you love something unreasonably also. It might go the other way, right? Well, that's that's the whole point. That's why you're here. And that's one of yeah. the reasons I'm really glad to have you. Uh, before we get into Hampton 04, though, let's learn a little bit about yourself. Uh, I mentioned just briefly that you and I have spoken already on other podcasts. The only way I could think to, fi- to figure to write this is I wrote, you seem to have your fingers in a lot of podcast pies. I'm not very uh, great with words all the time, but that's the best I could do. So before we break it all down, can you give our listeners a quick summary, and maybe you'll be more eloquent than I am, of your different podcasts, your roles, where we can hear your voice and what they're about? Sure. Uh, no promises on eloquence, but uh, <laughs> I, as you mentioned, I'm on the Helping Friendly podcast, and I've co-hosted that since uh, quite quite some time, and uh, it's always a blast. And I also am the producer and host of the Broke Down podcast, which is my theoretically Grateful Dead podcast, but I, I talk to a lot of musicians about not Grateful Dead music on that and other other guests, but also we talk about Grateful Dead. I think that's it. 
technically I've worked, I've, I've co-hosted undermine previously, but I'm not currently one of the hosts of that show. Uh, great show though. Everybody should listen. Probably, you probably do right. Fish podcasts. Everybody likes them. And you know, you can find all of those out there, uh, where all your favorite podcasts are found. And are all three of those under the Osiris media banner? Uh, yes. Although technically broke down podcast is what we call a community podcast, which is that it's an independent podcast with, uh, you know, we do some cross marketing and whatnot. Uh, cause when Osiris started, it was not a lot more than just a little, a network of like-minded podcasts. And they've of course since spun up a lot of original content, really great original content and stuff like that. Uh, but broke down pod is just still me soldiering on <laughs> fists in the air, born back yeah. against the wind with, with the broke down pod. I'm a big grateful dead fan. I'm a little bit young for having not been able to see them. Jerry Garcia died when I was 12 years old. So I never got that opportunity. No excuse. Uh, yeah, I know I should have <laughs> been there. Uh, but what, um, if I were to look up Broke Down Pod, what are some episodes that you would recommend to new listeners, um, especially younger listeners who may not have been around for the Grateful Dead's career? Well, there's a great pair of episodes with uh, guest Jeff Conklin, who is a DJ uh, out in upstate New York and great guy and a real head. And he and I got into like the Grateful Dead's various visits to the Pacific Northwest. And we did this before they released the Pacific Northwest box set or before they announced it. So, you know, don't really come at me for duplicating their efforts, <laughs> but um, you know, those are a great pair of episodes. You know, the other way to get into that show is really scroll and find a, a musician or other guest whose name you recognize and you'll get interview with them as well as some sort of mix of Grateful Dead music that may or may not relate to our conversation in some way. Yeah, I think that's a good recommendation for sure. I think that the Grateful Dead is a little bit harder of a nut to crack when it comes to podcasts compared to Fish, at least, just because Fish is so based in a world of instant gratification where you picked a show today, August 9th, 2004. Anyone listening to this with the click of a few buttons, whether on a computer or a phone, could pull up that show. Right, That might be true of the Grateful Dead on the Relisten app, but it's not necessarily true of there's no live fish for the Grateful Dead, right. for example. Right, They're not in practice at the time that we're speaking. Are you able to compartmentalize your knowledge of one band into another? Like I find myself on this show, it's kind of fish and only fish. Sometimes I mention The Who because they were my big favorite band before I discovered fish. But I can imagine myself, if I were talking about the Grateful Dead a lot, Fish would just kind of nudge its way into the conversation. Do you find yourself doing that ever? I mean, yeah, sometimes. Uh, more often it comes from the guest, particularly if they are, uh, you know, kind of person who likes both. Part of what I do with Broke Down that is different from helping friendly podcasts is when I'm talking to these guests or even when I don't have a guest is I'm looking to kind of recontextualize Grateful Dead against today or but also you know we'll we'll give it some context in its own time but you know i want people to maybe look at it differently so if you 
listened to the episode and I have a noise guitar guest, you know, on the show there, I might go with some weirder, more angular versions of space or something because I'm trying to connect those dots. And even if the guest isn't a fan of Grateful Dead, I am a fan of them. And to me, there is a, some sort of connection. And, you know, fish creeps in sometimes, sometimes not. You just mentioned about a minute ago that you also, in addition to having a family and a day job, that you also create music. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, uh, under, well, my name, but uh, J.M. Hart, I've been releasing, uh, been releasing music since 2020. I've got two albums out, more on the way. And yeah, it's kind of folk songwriter-ish stuff. A little, maybe a little rock here and there, but it's all available on my Bandcamp, jmhart.bandcamp.com. And for those of you listening, we'll put a link to that in today's show notes. So keep an eye out if you're interested. Uh, Give it a click. So, Jonathan, we heard a little bit about you as a podcaster and as a member of the Osiris family and as a musician as well. Let's hear a little bit about you as a fish fan with the attendance bias lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. So Jonathan, when was your first fish show and what do you remember from it? My first fish show was 10894 at the Patriot Center, George Mason University, Fairfax, Virginia. And it was um I was very excited. I actually had been listening to fish for a couple of years. I went in feeling like I knew a fair amount about them and good amount of their material. I, uh, I told my friend that I went with that. I I really wanted to see them do purple rain and they did. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, I'm actually going back to that same room in November of this year to see. So 28 years later, to see Trey and Goose. Oh, that's fun. Full circle, huh? Yeah. What do you remember from that show? Because the fall of 94, I mean, that's one of the best tours ever. So I I, I remember, I told you, I, I know most of their material or a lot of the material. Of course, they got me with a new one by playing Gaiuti. Uh It was the second Gaiuti. Loved that song. Immediately loved it. Uh, that was a... The Mike's groove, it was Mike's simple, Mike's hydrogen, but in the Mike's they had, uh, in addition to the heavy, heavy smoke machine they were doing at that time during Mike's and Trey running around with the megaphone like a gun and weird stuff, they Mm -hmm. also faded down and then brought the lights up on a girls soccer team on stage doing one of their team chants. And uh, that was weird. But I was into it. It was cool. Yeah, sure. If if it was weird and you were into it, it was made for you. You know, you belong there. And if it was October 8th, 94, that means that Gaiute was was debuted the night before. Yeah. So I did not know that song. (laughs) Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, So what was your most recent show? And what did you think Uh, of it? uh, Dick's. I went to Dick's, saw four shows. Um, night four, I thought, was pretty good. It was a very well-rounded show, if you will. Actually, I'm not sure I can really separate the individual nights other than the rain night in my head right now, because I have not gone back to listen since then. 
And uh, but I enjoyed the whole weekend. I thought they were playing well. I thought uh, the song selection was good. There's always something else I wanted to hear, but uh, you know, the the rain night where they played the long ass set was amazing. You know, all bangers all night. How could you go wrong? What do you think about the extension of three nights to four nights? Do you think it has any effect on their playing or are you just happy to have more fish? Well, this was my first time at Dick's. Okay. But I like a four night run. So, you know, you'll find me in Vegas for Halloween. I, I, I think four nights is a little bit of an endurance for olds like myself, but mm. it's totally pays off. It gives them plenty of time to really just, get through, get into material, get comfortable, particularly with dicks where they don't have a specific gag thing they've got to do, like in Vegas for Halloween or New Year's. Uh, I, I think it's a great idea. I'm glad they did it this year, and I hope they do it again. What is your favorite non-music-related podcast? This is tough. Uh, I don't listen to a lot of non-music podcasts, but there's one I listen to every single day now um <laughs> and it's an npr's the daily because i get unless i'm in the car listening to you know morning edition uh then i i listen to that because i get you know a little quick shot of news that i want before i start my day yeah the daily is a classic in a venue any given venue where is your favorite place to be if you had that kind of old school venue map and I'm sure you remember these times where you could buy tickets at the uh, at the box office and kind of point out where you wanted to sit. If you had that for every venue for fish, where's your spot? I have a couple of them. That's here. But I'm I really like low mic side. I'm not a floor guy. I'm not a GA floor guy. I'm I'm old. I need a chair. I'm not gonna lie. I'm with um, you. But uh, low on mic side is great. Uh, Dicks though page side is better, um, and also I really like and often choose to sit behind the stage. I've done it so many times, including the show we're going to talk about here uh, in a little bit. Uh, it is especially at Hampton, but also really nice at MSG. And I've done it a few other notable shows that I've really enjoyed. And so yeah, and I I think I find my people there. My favorite is to be behind the stage behind Fishman. To yes. me, it's like watching a movie. It's it's like watching the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. Because he's so his body, his core is so calm and relaxed, but his limbs never ever stop. I find it like if I could sit behind Fishman at every show, if I could sign a contract and do that, you know, give me the pen. I'm in. Yeah. Although on. 3609 we sat behind page and that was a great great spot you know you could see trey when he looked at page you would see his face but you could see <laughs> what he was doing very well and of course you could see all of page's business and uh he's got a lot of a lot going on up there so. sure and in hampton especially which is like small enough that you could yeah. see almost everyone if you concentrated hard enough i love that venue uh, next question, which is something that probably comes up every once in a while on the Helping Friendly Pod. What is your most controversial fish opinion? You're in a safe space. <laughs> yeah, until everybody hears what I have to say. <laughs> um, uh, my most controversial fish opinion is that I do not love the Fall 97 extended funk stuff. It 
bores me. There are good jams from Fall 97 that are not founded in that. And so I can always often find something uh, in some of those great shows. But um, yeah, that's not my thing. You won't believe me, but I'm going to tell you that I'm really glad to hear you say that. Not because I agree with you. I think you're nuts for to think that. But, <laughs> but I will say that whenever Fall 97 has come up, on this podcast or in other conversations I've had, I always feel the need to remind people that not everyone was bought in in real time. Not everyone at Fall 97 thought that it was the greatest tour ever. A lot of people, like you said, were bored. It was repetitive. They played the same songs. All the jams sounded the same. That was a real part of the conversation. If social media had been around at that time, we would be hearing that ad nauseum. Yeah, I mean, I had people who decided the fish was done. Right. I, I knew people who thought that and uh, they were not right, but I understood in the moment why they were thinking it. And finally, what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? Um, can I say boof on the radio? You can say anything you want. I, I, I think I just did. We just added um, boof to the seven dirty words. Now there's eight. <laughs> okay. Well, it, Let's it, say boof. If, if you know what it means, you know what I saw. If you don't, Think twice about looking it up. When was this show played? Let's talk about the late summer of 2004, which is the before times, a time when a lot of fish fans hush. The time that we don't want to talk about. We're going to dig into it a little bit today. And when you suggested this show or chose this show, believe it or not, I got really excited because this is a time in fish history that most people don't talk about. And man, have I been eager to discuss this because I went to so many shows at this time, not including today's. So just some basic infrastructure. The summer of 2004 was split into two legs. There was the, quote, early summer, which was made up of nine shows, started in Brooklyn, stuck around the Northeast, moved um, Midwest to Deer Creek and Alpine Valley, and then those nine shows were all in the middle weeks of June. It was very hot. Um, it was very stormy. Those of us in Brooklyn might remember. But it was really exciting. Then after those early summer shows, there was the late summer run, which was just four shows leading up to Coventry. We all know how that went. Uh, but those four shows were Today's Show in Hampton, two in Great Woods, one in Camden, and it should be noted that these four tour dates were announced before Fish told us that this would be their final tour. Except Hampton wasn't. Hampton was not announced with those other three dates pre-Coventry. They announced Co uh, that Coventry would be the end, then they added this date. I don't know if they always intended to add this date, but they added this date after. So had having already made the decision that I wasn't going to Coventry, they added this show and I was like, well, got to go to Hampton. I think a lot of people who are at that show may have felt similarly because the buildup to these shows were exciting already, but that announcement kind of changed the lens through which everyone saw this, that every time fish did something, it was your last opportunity to see them if you were not going to a subsequent show or certainly not if you were if you were not going to Coventry. My memory of a lot of these shows, not Hampton because I wasn't there, the demand for tickets and ticketless fans showing up 
was through the roof. I paid in on the way to Camden, I think it was $80 for a ticket. I felt robbed. Robbed. You can't even get in the building nowadays for that. <laughs> right? But I'm like, oh my God, I'm paying double for what yeah. I should be paying. And that show wasn't even that good. Um, but 2004, <laughs> in my opinion, was a very complex. It was a confusing time to be a fish fan. Like the quality and consistency of the music in my opinion, was deteriorating. It was inconsistent at best. And more disturbingly, so were the band members' appearances. Trey, most of all, you could see him almost losing weight night to night until his skin was just white paper over bone structure. It was very disturbing. Um, For a while, those three disastrous shows in April in Las Vegas, which a lot of people kind of look at as the turning point in 2004, they were easy to toss aside as like an anomaly. Like, oh, they it three shows in the middle of uh, of the year without a tour is just, you know, it's not a good way to get any sort of vibe going. Uh, the band party too hard. It's Vegas. Chris Carota wasn't there. Like, it was easy to put aside. But once the band announced their breakup in May, it was clear that something was wrong in Fishland. It was disturbing. When they first started that first leg, it wasn't as bad as Vegas, which is a low bar to <laughs> to yeah. cross. But uh, you know, like I think they they showed the Brooklyn show in the movie theater. I yes. saw that in the movie theater, and it was okay. Well, there's some stuff here. I think there was a big like song I heard the ocean sing or something in one of those. And there's something. It's better than Vegas. Well, <laughs> right, right. That's what you say as you exit the movie theater. I wanted to actually put this toward you because whenever I've brought that up to fans on this show or just in general in conversation, people say, you know, well, f- 2004 had its highlights and they always mentioned Brooklyn. They always mentioned SPAC, always the Piper uh, in SPAC. And my thought is each show had its highlights, but holistically, the shows were not very good. I, I'm with you there. Uh, we did a show on SPAC 04 on the HF pod not terribly long ago. And I can tell you that Brian uh, forced it on us. Brian Brinkman. And Brian Brinkman, love the guy, forced it on us. <laughs> and I was forced to concede kind of what you're saying here is like, yes, that jam is good. This show is not. And there's a lot of that going around. I I honestly think you could probably look at, was it the first night of Brooklyn and say, you know, that, that show's pretty good. Um, yeah, that was the one they released, I believe, on DVD. Yeah. All I think kind of by default because they already had it in quality to put in movie theaters. Oh, yeah. But it bucks the trend. But I mean, you get those four guys on stage, something great is going to happen at some point, regardless. One would think. Right? You'd hope. But I don't know. I just... I don't like this 2004 revisionism that people say it wasn't that bad. There's a lot of good stuff. It's just maybe there's a lot of good stuff. If you look at the whole tour. (laughs) I I think that people are, maybe they're getting it confused with summer 2003, which was not that bad. No, no. 2003 Um, as a year was very good. Yeah. Especially the spring, but also the summer had some great stuff and it was really good and i was i'm thrilled that i went there august 9th 2004 was the kickoff of the final four before coventry i hopped on tour in great woods the next night i don't know much about this show in general i hadn't listened to it until you suggested it my impression of great woods and camden were that they were overcrowded 
They were very druggy. Uh, like literally all you had to do is turn your head, turn your head a degree and you would see someone exchanging or taking something with someone else, maybe boofing. I don't know. Uh, it was <laughs> musically disorganized. This is maybe me projecting, but there was this weird kind of desperation hanging over show as if this would be the show that the band would break out of their haze of 2004 and show us a glimpse of the old fish. I don't know. It just didn't happen. Uh, but people, my impression is that people like kind of put their heads in the sand about what life will look like after fish is over. It was kind of discussed, but it wasn't really delved into. So what was the vibe like at Hampton? Hey, the vibe was heavy. Uh, especially among my friends. Uh, most of us were not going to Coventry, you know, the group that I was with at Hampton. And so we were looking at our final show or maybe they were going to Camden or something. So one of our last shows, it was definitely, that was it for me. I wasn't going North. Um, they, you know, as I said, they announced it kind of, you know, out of cycle after the whole tour. So I had actually not planned on going to the tour. Then they announced the Coventry was the end. Uh, my friends were going to Coventry like, okay, now we're definitely going. I was like, mm, something smells wrong. Yeah. And I'm not going. Uh, I sometimes have a sense of when a debacle may be ensuing. Uh, and it has paid off a few times in the past. I feel like it paid off there. But they, of course, as I said, they announced Hampton. Of course, I'm going to Hampton. That's home field. I'm a Virginia guy. And so I had a crew of my Virginia friends and we, you know, posted up kind of behind, uh, behind the stage towards Mike, a uh, little shifted around, not straight back behind Fishman. Yeah. I mean, people were going for it. I think people were looking for this to be, you know, and yet another classic Hampton show. I was looking for it to not be awful. I'm not sure any of us got either of those two wishes, Certainly didn't feel like it when I left. Well, let me ask you, who were you at that time? Like, how old were you? What was your life like? And then follow-up question, why do you have attendance bias toward this show? I was 30 years old, uh, almost 30 years old. I you know, I had a wife, uh, an eight-year-old, and a nine-month-old, both daughters. Um, and, you know, I lived a couple blocks from where I live today. You know, and the first house my wife and I bought, you know, she, her family lived not too far from Hampton, like an hour and a half from Hampton. So, which cuts the travel time in half. So, and I had a buddy who lived not too far from her who was kind of interested. So, you know, we, we went and um, my wife stayed with her family with the, with the kids and he and I went to the show and I have often this the worst show that I ever attended. Uh, I might still believe that. Um, on paper, it looks like a lot more than it is to me. I think the 2.0 lovers in 2004, OxyJam freaks probably eat this stuff up. But to me, I walked out of there thinking it was sloppy. It was disrespectful to those of us who gave a shit, except for everything that John Fishman did and Mike Gordon did. <laughs> And it was, you know, like my own personal miniature Coventry before Coventry even happened. And then, of course, I sat uh, alone listening to the stream of Coventry in my, in my desk in my house. And boy, 
boy, was that depressing too. Um, so yeah, I, I, I hated this show. My friends and I were crying during this show many times because it was our last show and it was a, we were going to miss fish B we didn't want fish to be like this anyways. And I don't know what C is. Uh, so maybe we'll, maybe we'll stop there. We'll get there. So maybe choosing this show is therapeutic for you. Maybe it's like confronting a very sad part of your fish going life. We'll find out, yeah, I guess. Definitely. Set one. Well, let's break it down. The first set starts with chalk dust torture. And the very first note I put on my my document is the audio from this recording isn't very good. <laughs> I, and 2004 wasn't very good in general. There were just so many people. It was very boomy. But very quickly in this chalk dust torture, it is very clear. This crowd is there. They are excited. They are loud. They are ready to explode. I felt that if you put this chalk dust torture on without any context and just press play for me, I would think this is a New Year's Eve show at Madison Square Garden. That's how big this sounds. Yeah, I mean, uh, I listened to the board on Live Fish because I wanted to just listen to the music and not think about the room in any way other than what I already knew. So when I listen to it, I'm very quickly hearing... Trey catch a clam and not quite hit that thing, hit, hit, even just in the song part of the song. And then <clears throat> lo and behold, there's a big jam. I've seen some big chalk dusts, some really epic, good chalk dusts. This one is definitely big. Yeah, it's something like 20 minutes uh, around that. I and mean, that's not an exaggeration. The song is only about five minutes. And then they start searching in the jam almost immediately. Uh, to me, this is a lot of 2004 in a nutshell, like in one track. I wrote down that like seven minutes, about seven minutes and 40 seconds. This is what I remember from most of 2004. There's like searching and it's very quiet, by the way, in such a loud, excited arena. It gets very quiet. And I had the feeling that around that time or maybe a few minutes later, I would be just kind of bopping my head and maybe even moving my shoulders. But there wasn't much to grab onto. Yeah, Trey keeps like spinning up ideas and abandoning them very quickly before even the band can latch on and they can like ride something together. 
fish is rock solid underneath the whole thing. Otherwise, it would completely collapse. Uh, Mike is right there with him. But they just kind of try let's try this we'll get some let's get one of those loop things going let's get oh let's kind of do this a dissonant bit and but but nothing sticks yeah toward the end of it fishman and page kind of team up to show a little bit of muscle and finally my ears were like oh thank god it was like jumping into a pool after on a like sweltering hot day uh but then it ends about a minute later there's in a there's a trailer jam that brings everything to a peak, but then he just like stops. I know it is trade just ends it. Yeah. He's, just, he's like, okay, chalk dust finished. Yeah. It's almost mean. Yeah. <laughs> and then after, <laughs> after that though, there's another jam monster coming up in bathtub gin. That's a little slower than usual, but again, soft directionless guitar lines uh, where the rest of the band band is kind of vamping on the main theme of gin. Some of these same melodic lines is like drowned. I don't know. I thought that a lot of 2004, this era of 2004, they were very interchangeable. There weren't a lot of jams that were distinct unto themselves until they reached a peak, which was rare. Yeah. And, you know, this gin is, (laughs) my notes are very brief for such a long jam, right? But this gin is very similar to the chalk dust. It's yeah. a lot of trying things. There is one point, and maybe you have the timestamp in your notes, but there's one point where they all actually catch on to something together and they run with it. And it's actually, there's, there's a pretty good passage here, kind of, I want to say it's like a dozen minutes in or something. I think you're talking about terrible. No, it's not. Um, 
I'm ready to dump a little bit on Fish in 2004. The way that you describe the reason you didn't go to Coventry is awakening a lot of scabs. It's picking out a few scabs that I didn't Sorry. know were still there. <laughs> it's, it's all right that we're still there. Um, the, but the part that you mentioned, I time stamped at 11 minutes. Uh, I said at 11 minutes, this jam is giving a lot. Uh, it turns into quasi-funk rock uh, lasts all the way through 16 minutes. Uh, I wrote either I'm remembering a lot of 2004 wrong or they're extra excited to be back on the road to play. But at the same time, I had this thought from back um, of Analyze Fish, that podcast, right? Where, yeah. where I forget who it was. Someone said, it's very suspicious when you tell me to fast forward to the seven minute mark. <laughs> to hear the good stuff. And that's how I feel about this one. It goes 11 minutes before you hear something worth really delving into. Yeah. That's a Scott Ackerman quote. If I ever heard one, yeah. um, he's, he's right. Backing up a little, you make a fair point. Like, are they, are they excited to be back on the road? Well, Hampton was kind of special already at this point. Like, you know, when they came back at the beginning of 2.0, they played new year's, but then they came to Hampton. Hampton was special. They had already released, you know, they released Hampton Comes Alive after the 98 shows. The 97 shows were big for the fall 97 type people, including the band who really loved it and thought they were going to recreate that magic when they did the 98 shows. Played there in 99. You know, they they played there a lot. They love it there. Um, it is the like anti MSG in many respects, particularly as compared to the modern MSG. Absolutely. It is not modern in any way. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the energy is always good. GA hall crowd is excited and, and they like that. And so I think they showed up for a show of the final stretch and wanted to deliver I wonder if on the night Trey really thought he was delivering. There's an argument to be made at some points. I mean, from the 11 minute mark on on this again, around 20 minute track, I think that this is a very good bathtub gin, but there are also points that fish in 2004 would happen. You mentioned this way back that they would happen upon these awesome runs or melodies. They would develop them long enough for us to get used to them. And then, Time to go. Time to go on to something else. And that happens a lot in this bathtub gin. And then it would just kind of melt into dissonance until Trey decided what song to play next. Yeah. And, you know, it's um, I don't even think in Chalk Dust they were developing enough for us to hang on them. We'd be like, oh, Trey's doing. Never mind. Right. Right. It would last that long. <laughs> yeah. It's a shame. Uh, I know people. There are people who really love these two jams. And I hope they do not feel that I'm attempting to take that away from them. But no, it's not about that. I, I'm reliving a lot of what I saw, not just what I heard, but what I saw in 2004 at this moment, a lot of staring into the thousand yard stare, like staring into nothingness, a lot of tapping on different pedals and nothing that's connecting with my ears. While at the same time, I'm just hoping and hoping and hoping that something will bring me back to that initial joy from when I first heard them and when I first started seeing them. And it just didn't happen, except for one night. I'll say August 11th at Great Woods. I really enjoyed. <laughs> right on. I liked um, it. I would never try to take away a good time from someone. I hope right. I'm glad anybody who enjoyed this show 
Don't listen to me. This is my view. But don't turn off the podcast yet because the set yeah, isn't even over. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we got more stuff to trash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and things I liked, I swear. Well, yeah. I mean, up next was Runaway Jim, which is a standard, typical version. Uh, Trey uses a few more power chords. He's playing a lot with his volume, which he did over the course of yeah. his whole tour. Uh, but a little more of the same, a well-performed composed section which a soft with a softly played beginning before building up to a very raucous finish. I like this Runaway Jim. Yeah, I like this Runaway Jim too. It's, it is uh, kind of the best of what you're going to get here. Uh, I, my note is that this, it's more or less standard with a splash of slop because it's not <laughs> note perfect playing from Trey, uh, but it's got the right energy. And again, Mike and Fish and Paige will give him some credit here. Really like they make sure it's going to get there and Trey keeps up. Maybe things are settling in for Trey at this point. It's funny you say that because the next song is walls of the cave. And my thought was whatever Trey took before the show sounds like it's kicking in during the intro walls of the cave. First of all, there was a f- almost a three minute pause between runaway Jim and walls of the cave. I know the grateful dead are Famous for tune-ups, right? In between songs. <laughs> Trey doesn't Fish, need to tune. Well, yeah. Well, Fish was not very famous for tune-ups. They would be right on it from one song to the other. But man, whatever, I'll say it again, whatever he took before the show, it's starting to kick in now because the he flubbed the opening uh, guitar lines of Walls of the Cave after Paige started with his intro. And his voice, I hate to say it, literally sounds drugged. notes are again kind of brief for such a, a big song but i've got more thoughts than what i wrote down but i will say it begins like this here we are not even two years since 2.0 began practically in this room one show before and then you know in this room and and walls of the cave is this is my first walls of the cave but i knew it i'd been listening i'd been at hampton but not that i was only at those at the pebbles and marbles night and and you know, the band is done. This song is very much a 2.0 song. Like it is not just because it began there, but I am completely connected to that point in time with this song. And, and even then I was like, Oh, this is one of those songs when, when they came back, it was such a big deal. And, and Trey is totally blowing the intro. (laughs) And this was one of those points when we were, you know, we had gotten through, 
God, what is it? We're 40, 50 minutes into this show already. And yeah. now he's just, he's flailing on the beginning of this song. Yeah, it's not like it's You Enjoy Myself, which, you know, he's known long enough to have forgotten. He should know this one. And he, but, it, but it's it, not, it's not, it's, it's not a throwaway though, because they're on no. their game when the silent trees portion begins. They are. I'm going to argue. You know what? I'm stepping I, up. I'm not arguing against you here. <laughs> it, the the song it picks up because it's the jam ragey kind of part, and Trey is ready to play that. I think Jim got him warmed up and ready to play that stuff. And uh, yeah, it kind of kind of gets hot. There's a point. Full full confessional. Full. Uh, information here. Uh, I'm recovering from COVID, feeling fine. But when I was not feeling fine, I was listening back to this just a few days ago, and I had to turn this song off because it was just too many notes. That said, then I was sick. Uh, it's not too many notes, but boy, does he play a lot of notes. Yeah. That might be the part where I, where I wrote down six shredding and Fishman fills. Yeah, There's a lot minutes. of that. It's intense. And yeah, it is. I, and I wouldn't say that, you know, okay, skip ahead a little bit on this track too, but there's something to hear on this one for sure. Big time. And then it's pretty much, you mentioned the timing. It's pretty much the end of the set. They close with Loving Cup, a five-song first set. Yeah, the 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 cheer that the audience gives uh, on I Know I Play a Bad Guitar. Uh, <laughs> it makes me so sad even now, honestly. I love that song. I think I, I spoke about it when you were on Helping Friendly Pod last time. And it's a, such a wonderful song. I'm connected with it uh as a stone song but also as a fish you know set closer show closer encore whatever um i was definitely losing it during this and we were all hugs and catching up and you know glad to be with our friends at set break Hi, everybody. Brian here to welcome you to the set break of today's episode of Attendance Bias. First, thank you for listening. And second, just a quick reminder to tell you that even though Attendance Bias comes to you for free, it does take a lot of work and it does take quite a bit of money to keep the lights on here at production. 
So I just wanted to ask a small favor, if you could support the podcast in any number of the following ways, if you could leave a review or a rating of it on whichever podcast app you use, if you could spread the word telling a friend or someone you think may be interested in it about it, or probably the most concrete way is to go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendance bias and donate however much you can financially to help with the continuing costs of attendance bias. So thank you again so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. Set two. Set two begins with all of these dreams. And my thought is, after that energy, especially to close the first set, all of that energy, and that popped up in Bathtub Gin here and there, to open with with this very odd ballad, or at least odd placement for a ballad, like this is, I don't know, this is a hallmark of 2004, like odd set placements for new ballads. I feel like this happened all the time. Friday Encores, for example. You know, I'm okay with a ballad opener. I'm a little less okay with a ballad opener, which Trey botches the intro riff. And I don't want to be that guy who's like, oh, Trey botched this, Trey botched that. But it was very indicative of who he and how he was at the time. This is what 2004 gets you. And, you know, Trey said in the nineties in bittersweet motel, it's like people come here to see us to hit every note. Well, bro, actually we kind of were doing that. Like when I was seeing fish in 1994, I was actually there to see them hit every note. I was also there to see them, make shit up as they went, particularly in like 95, you know, when that was a good chunk of what they did. But when you played Reba, you needed to play the Reba parts too. And it's like both is possible. And those years prove that it was at least one time possible in 2004, less so. Yeah. And, And it just reminded me of what we had lost or were losing. Yeah, that's fair. We, I had a, Jeff Goldberg of fish.net on this podcast a number of years, not a number of years. I've only been doing it two years, but <laughs> a while back. <laughs> all the all the all way back when we were just, just getting started. Uh just he kids. chose <laughs> yeah. He chose the uh the game hen show from Great Woods in 1994. And I remember it came up. I asked him, is it important to you that fish hits every note correct? And without hesitation, he just said, Yes, it is. Look, and I think I'm gonna, go ahead. I'm gonna, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out here, and I don't talk about this stuff too much, even on the other fish podcasts. But when you are, when you have done certain things to your brain at fish shows, and they play these songs exactly the same way every time in the first, you know, when you're doing this a lot, maybe as a young man, and you learn to dance to these songs as they are played a certain way. Then when you are more adult and not doing things to your brain, you hear these songs, it can jog certain memories. You may flash backwards to those feelings and, and, and maybe even know that dance. And then when they play it wrong, and I don't mean differently because differently can be good, but there is also wrong. It really throws you off. It takes sure. you out of the moment. And new songs at that time threw me off. And took me out of the moment because I knew that these were their last, I don't know, Coventry was two nights. So let's say the last six shows. It's we have a limited amount of time left 
why open a second set with all of these dreams? It's not going to go anywhere. The way I looked at it, even though it's a good song, I actually like this song. But as a teacher, it's like when I have a student who I can tell is really intelligent and capable, but they keep making bad decisions. Like they, they hang out with the wrong kids. <laughs> you know, it's like you're you're great the way you are. Like I, but you keep making I bad will choices. defend their right to play new songs. You even as a guy who writes songs. Even when they're even when they're admittedly sure. gonna be off the planet in a couple of weeks, not even. Because they're still proud of this newer thing. You know, it doesn't make them less proud of it because they didn't write it 20 years ago or 10 years ago or whatever. This is still, you know, a song that they love or certainly feel is worthy and they want to present it. And it, I, I don't, I'm, I'm okay with it. As I say, I'm okay with the ballad opener. I'm okay with all of these dreams. I wish it, it played right. I wish they played it more. I wish they took a lot of these songs like Friday and all of these dreams. And now that they're a lot more together and Trey's voice is much better. And they're a little bit more um, careful with how they play at a slower tempo. I'd like to hear these uh, like songs like discern or secret smile, all yes. these hated songs when we were <laughs> in our early thirties, our mid twenties or so that we were just ready to rage. I think there's a better place for them now in 2022, 2023. I don't know about Friday, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's let's move ahead. Uh, The second song of the set is Limb by Limb. And this is where I most noticed Trey's tone. There's a lot of talk. You mentioned uh, sludge and people love oxygens. Trey's tone is very noticeable in Limb by Limb. And I realized about two minutes in, I don't think I've acknowledged Paige at all so far this show. What's up with that? He's in there. Um, <laughs> Paige, Paige is doing some good stuff, but Paige is also kind of hiding in the mix. Um, I don't know if I mean hidden or hiding. He stands out at times. I think I brought him up late, bring him up later in my notes. In fact, I definitely do later on in this show. I'll talk about Trace Tone really quick. I thought it was, it's weirdly raw. Uh, the soundboard really reveals this even more, um, mm-hmm. although it's, it is interesting to hear the a- audience tapes and kind of hear the way it feels in the room. It's actually, in some respects, not horribly far from some of the tone he's been going for recently, but he's doing it better now. I hear like, that. Yeah, He's got a better amp to get that. He's got this beautiful high gain amps, like untouchable amps that are really getting that kind of ripping sound that he wasn't, that he maybe was going for, but he didn't get then. There was a burn that isn't as pleasing to the ear. Yeah, an edge for sure. Yeah. Well, they speaking of Paige, toward the end of Limb by Limb, there is kind of a piano-based solo about six minutes, but then he drops out, even Paige does, and it leads to a more traditional ending of Fishman singing and playing that drops entirely.
but it's interesting because they play uh, Life Boy next. And what I noticed about Life Boy is the song itself is over at five minutes and 50 seconds, but the track on fish.in goes all the way to nine minutes and 40 seconds. What was going on for those four minutes? I wish I could remember. And I, the, these shows do exist on YouTube, by the way. If oh, people want okay. to go watch them, you can. I didn't want to go watch them. I'm not going to lie. I think that, you know, listening to it, like I said, I listened to the soundboard so I could hear the music, just the music more objectively, but I didn't want to kind of pile onto my memory. Yeah. But that's out there. People can and maybe maybe should go through because they, you know, you can skip ahead. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what was going on. Um, nonsense on stage, probably a good bit of that. Uh, trying to pick the next song. This is the only time I've ever seen Life Boy. And um, what the hell? <laughs> um, I... I'm certain that I cried my face off during this. I bet. Um, and I would, if they did it again, and I'm open to that, I'm just putting that out there in the universe. Then they played crowd control. Can I get ahead of us on yeah, this yeah, and just yeah. go with it? So I don't like this song. It was certainly, it was my first time seeing it. And the only other times I've seen the song are where they opened it, opened with it consecutive years at Merriweather, hmm. which did not, improve my opinion of the song although those performances are fine and i don't know when i say i don't like the song it's not that i don't that i think it's bad i just haven't found place in my heart for it and i think it might be because of this performance and the way i feel about this show but also you know like on this version that the the singing is really um, I use the word lackluster in my notes. And if I took the time to write that many letters to say not good, <laughs> um, it, it makes <laughs> my notes go on to say the lackluster singing as the chorus ends makes me wonder if they even like this song. Oh, geez. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? Tough. It's tough. I swear, guys, there's some nice stuff up here. Some things I like coming up, I swear. Well, yeah, when Stash comes around, we'll get there. Um, I actually like Crowd Control a lot. I was there for its debut at the Nassau Coliseum. Right on. I think it's it, I think it's an accessible song. I like the message that it's like the band because at the time, uh, toward 2000, and then when they came back in 2003, well 2002, but really 2003, um, shit was wild in the in the parking lot in the fan base. And Don't I get I, a mirror, guys. Come on, you're gonna well, do yeah. something about us. <laughs> but that's the, but that's the thing. They're playing it here in August two thousand four, and the phrase "the time has come for changes." Do something, or we will. What else can you do if you're breaking mm-hmm. up? Like they you've did, pu- you've pulled the eject seat. You know, like the the cord has been pulled. Like the teeth are gone from the message of this song. Yeah, it's weird uh, when you think of it in that context. One of these days, I'm going to ask Tom to talk about this song with me. That'd be wonderful. Um, let me know because I'm tuning in for that. <laughs> but after crowd control, they go into seven below, which is one of the better 2.0 songs, I think, and jam vehicles for certain. Yeah. Why don't they play this more? By the way, it's all but shelved right now. And it's a beautiful song. 
This one is a little disjointed, but Fishman is a monster throughout. So must shout out Jonathan Fishman. The man is king. Trey pushes it in several directions, kind of around the midpoint. Like he, like it's almost like again, like in chalk test, like he doesn't know where these kind of directions will go, or maybe he doesn't even care. And then it kind of gets like thick, mushy, and to me, it was uninteresting. Um, there was some like mild feedback wall sounds for a bit there, which I think could have been interesting again but that's where trey kind of checks out because i think something happened with his rig yeah uh, i actually use the phrase squelched uh <laughs> which I, a word i don't use very often um i did also use the word mushy somewhere but toward the very end of the track uh trey introduces brian brown his guitar tech because apparently something went wrong with his guitar which to your earlier point i think is why fishman was able to kind of step forward and lead things because the guitar wasn't being played, at least not well. Yeah. In the last bit before, before Trey introduces Brian, but he's kind of checked out playing wise, messing with his rig or whatever fish is doing these really cool, like dubby snare fills that um, are really there. And they're really cool. It's yeah, he's awesome. God, God bless the guy. The band is basically still jamming without Trey there at the last bit. And it's kind of cohesive. Actually, I agree. I agree. Uh, and then they go into stash, which is solid and well-played the composed section, at least uh, with an intense jam that eventually cools off. It stomps around around nine minutes. And then it just kind of oddly awkward out of nowhere. I put the word segue in quotes into NICU. This is funny. I have, very different thoughts on this stash, but it's, you know, this is one of my songs. Like when you, if you, anybody who listens to HF pod on the regular, you know, when we get to talk about a stash, you know, Megan will be like, and Jonathan, oh, tell us what you thought about this stash. And I, you know, cause <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of my tunes, one of my longtime favorite songs. Uh, this one, it actually starts reasonably well. I feel like Trey blows it. And by the time he gets to the, was it for this, my life I sought, part i was asking questions to in the show and it was um again this is is very upsetting to me yeah speaking of my you know to my attendance bias you know in the room at the time it was very upsetting to me uh you know this is I, my friends were upset too i know i wasn't the only one who cried a lot during the show for a variety of reasons um you know this was 
not the band that I had seen just like four years earlier or 10 years earlier, or even just a year earlier. Uh, so when I listened back to this the other day, I was kind of, I was barely focusing on the jam. I was really reliving that moment again. And, um, that I checked out the timing and I was actually kind of dismayed to think there was like five minutes left in the jam because I couldn't see how Trey was going to dig out of the hole that he had kind of wound them into. But, uh, Jonathan Fishman does, um, I think it kind of gets worse before it ends on the Trey side, but Fishman troops through it. Mike too. He is super on point. We're going to give him additional shout outs, but like he kind of, blunts the trade just kind of blunts every bit that could have really been something and it kind of wanders into space And then Trey decides to play NICU, as you say. I love NICU. Me too. It's not super locked in. Is that a way to say it? I think that's very diplomatic, yeah. Trey is playing. He's not playing super. He's not actually playing poorly, but I feel like he's not listening. Like, because he's not connecting. Like, uh, I wrote, forgive me if I don't sing in your tempo. Um, oh jeez. Well, he's kind of playing it like I know you're a musician and when you play with a band and you're you sit down, you're a guitarist, right? Yeah. All right, so you sit down in, on your um in your seat on your stool or sitting on your amp and you're just kind of playing whatever riff of a song that's in your head while the other band members show up to practice. And that's what it sounds like he's doing. Like he's not playing with anyone. He's just kind of playing to himself, but oh, well, we're in Hampton Coliseum and there's tens of thousands of people who paid to be here. You're not at practice. You know, it's not smooth. It's just like he's playing to himself and the band Fishman noticeably catches on and eventually they are at playing and I see you as a group.
Um, I will say there is a great page solo on this. And if you are listening to the live fish version, pop your headphones in for this part. It sounds amazing on your headphones, pages solo on this NICU, like the Orion kind of ping ponging between and through the stereo field. It's, it's, uh, it's great. Page. Follow up NICU. They play bug, which to me, I had this thought that it very much feels like a modern first set even though it's a second set from years ago, it feels like this set list, you look at it, you could see it being like, oh, they played a really old school first set last night in Atlantic City, like that kind of a thing. It looks really good. Uh, you can hear the the cheering at the beginning, but then the excitement very quickly dies down. It becomes kind of a dirge in a way. Bug, which is a good song, and I think 2.0 is very good to Bug, actually. Uh, it doesn't matter. What do you mean? Sorry, <laughs> sorry. It's an old joke. Uh, one of the friends oh, I was God. with I'm, I'm at worse. the time. It's fine. Uh, who I was with actually. I remember when Bug debuted. He had been on the road. I wasn't, and he uh, and they came back with tapes uh, because he and his roommate, who was also, I believe, at this show with us, um, was a he was a taper, and uh, and so my friend. John tells, you know, you know, we're talking about the couple of new songs. So what's this one's like? Oh, da, 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 da. what's that one like? Oh, it's like this. And it's like, what about bug? And all the time he's like queuing up, getting ready to play a dat you know, so we can transfer it. And he was like, I was like, well, what's bug like? And he said, doesn't matter. Well, that was, but, but what is bug like? Doesn't matter. Um, John's not with them, us anymore. So I like to wow. piss people off with that joke uh, now and then in his honor. Um, I thought um, this is a pretty good version, actually. <laughs> it is a good version. I agree. Uh, there's some amazing drum fills at about three minutes. Really impressive stuff. And then they go into contact. And my thought was we didn't get a lot of fun in 2004. There wasn't a lot of antics. So contact was a little bit of fun. Uh, it was nice. It was mellow, although it was toward the end of an uneven set. And they end it with a little drummer boy tease. I don't know. Was it like a note, a nod to Fishman? Like you're doing a really great job this show. Let's, let's acknowledge you. <laughs> I kind of feel like that too. Um, you know, I think it was nice that they let Mike have one. Yeah. Um, it was a great funky <laughs> breakdown in this as well. And then, yeah, the little drummer boy, the little drummer boy. Um, I, I had the same idea as you. I wrote, uh, I'll mark that as a tribute to a certain drummer who slayed on this show, even when his guitar player friend was not so sharp. Although he showed up, both the drummer and the guitar player, for the set closing character Zero, which was similar to Loving Cup. It kind of plays the same role. It's a simple, easy, likable rocker to leave the stage with everyone smiling, right? Trey could always play this song. Right. The worst Trey that I've seen, which wasn't necessarily this show, uh, Trey could always play this song. Uh, it's just, it's rock. This is his, like, this is where he came from as a player. Before yep. he was able to do the more fanciful things uh, as a player, he could do this. And he does it very well. They go off stage for what I imagine is a couple of minutes, come back on for David Bowie, which is an unusual call for an encore. I would not. Ex I mean, these days it's a little more common, but back then, you know, this is another jam vehicle that would last 20 minutes to open the show. Uh, but it was an encore this night. Uh, I like the ambience 
for a while, which I don't say very often about 2004. And then a little bit later, I wrote down, I can't tell if I like this or not. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, they, they make it to the jam out of the, you know, the, the core intro part of the song to the jam, by just by the skin of their teeth, it's not terrible on the way there, but it's like, it's a nail biter. Um, and at this point I was just a mess. David Bowie's and other songs big for me. This is the last, like, surely they're not going to play something after this. So this is probably the last song I'm going to see from fish. Trey doesn't look good he's not playing like he used to arguably they need to stop. These are all the things I'm thinking while I'm watching an okay David Bowie and maybe better than the one that was going to come up in a, in a big mud field uh, a few weeks later, however long it was. Uh, I mean, it's nine years to the day since Jerry's passed. And here I was watching another favorite guitar player just teetering and it was, um, it's upsetting. You know, the only thing that like, there was a little hope, which is that they were ending the band, which is the thing that many deadheads argue might have saved Jerry. If they had like stopped pushing to do grateful dead, maybe Jerry would have found his way sooner. Well, if at all, but maybe not, that's all speculation. And, and so, you know, I'm thinking that and I'm reliving it as I listen to it again. And uh, and then I was like, oh, is, is this jam getting there? feels like Maybe it not. until about seven minutes and then it goes off the rails. It goes into this. I wrote down the space place. <laughs> right. So there's like um, Trey is pushing at something. Fish is killing it. Paige is driving. Mike is, you know, kind of relentlessly uh, locked in with fish. And there's this uh, like I suffer still to this day. Listening to this is waves of conflict emotional conflict you know as i'm listening to the dissonance build the band pushes to climax and oh is trey gonna be there kind of he's kind of there yeah kind of get there and then he and then it goes away unfortunately well that's what i mean though like they finish they 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 hit the peak the resolve of the david bowie it's not it's not as bad as I might would have you believe based on everything else I've said about this show so far. 
Well, Jonathan Hart of the Broke Down Podcast, Helping Friendly Podcast, every other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on to Attendance Bias today to talk about so much, uh, principally August 9th, 2004 at the Hampton Coliseum, which kind of sounded like a two-way therapy session uh, where we each acted as each other's therapist. We obviously have a lot to say about this era in the band's time. Uh, but thank you for kind of opening my ears to one of the shows of that last run that I did not see. So I really got to hear a perspective on it that in some ways matched my own and in other ways completely diverged. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you for letting me spill my guts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, uh, this is a, it was tall order. You know, there are a couple easy picks. I could have picked, you know, various favorite shows over the years. And I know I pitched at least one that you've done before. And that that's cool. I'm not surprised. And uh, and so I decided to go a different way. Uh, my attendance bias makes me not love this show, but I'm very emotionally connected to it. And that's it for today's episode with Jonathan Hart. And even though this was a longer conversation in terms of our usual episodes, there really weren't too many facts and figures we got wrong. Just a couple of references to look up. So now it's time for the Attendance Bias Fact Check. Attendance Bias Fact Check. The three Las Vegas shows that I mentioned from 2004 were played on April 15th, 16th, and 17th. While you will find defenders of that run... They are widely regarded as one of the worst fish runs ever played, with Trey losing his voice at various points, Chris Kuroda's absence from the light board, and botched composed sections throughout. It is rumored that journalist Jesse Jarno's review of the shows on jambands.com, calling the first set of April 15th, quote, an unmitigated disaster, was one of the first causes of the band to discuss their breakup soon after. Jonathan then references a version of A Song I Heard the Ocean Sing from Brooklyn. It is an excellent performance, and it was played on the first night of that Brooklyn run on June 17, 2004. Crowd Control debuted on November 28, 2003 at the Nassau Coliseum. It was toward the end of the second set before a mic groove closed the second set. And that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank Jonathan Hart for joining me today, Fish.net for its help with the fact check, and Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of it on your favorite podcast app. You can also support Attendance Bias by following it on social media, mostly Instagram and Twitter. And finally, you can always go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash Attendance Bias and donate anything you can. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.